Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. If you are new, uh, my name is Aaron. get to be the pastor of our church. And if you are new, we've been journeying through the book of Genesis by verse, and we've got all the way to chapter 39. But before we get there, I want to tell you this really, really funny story. Well, I think it's funny. You better laugh. Now, you're, now it's pressure, right? But uh, it was actually Valentine's Day 2014, and I had arranged this really nice restaurant for us to go on Valentine's Day, made all the plans, and everything just went wrong. I um, uh, gave her a call that, that day. We were not, uh, we just got married. This is our first Valentine's Day, so I felt a lot of pressure to make sure I do this thing right. And uh, her car breaks down. Um, so I have to go pick her up from work, but then I didn't plan on doing that, uh, driving extra distance. So like, I almost ran out of gas. So like, okay, we got to stop by the gas station, get some gas before we go on our date, go to the gas station. And I'm like, oh, let me clean out my car some a little bit. So I'm throwing some trash away. And then I get back in the car. I'm like, I can't find my keys. Where are my keys? I lost my keys. We take the next 45 minutes to go through everything in my car. We're emptying out the gas station trash can. That's y'all. That's another level of gross. Unpacking all of that. And my keys, guess where they were? In my pocket the entire time. I'm furious. We missed our dinner reservation. And then we just end up going to some like sad, sad restaurant that had like four and a half reviews, one point something stars. It was just really sad. But if I had just remembered that my keys were with me, then it would have changed my outlook and the outcome of all my actions. That's what we're going to see that happens with Joseph is that he does remember that God is with him. And if we remember that God is with us, he is for us, he's in every circumstance, then we're not looking through trash, (laughs) trying to find God and his will for us. So let me begin today with this question for your hearts. How would your life and your outlook on life change if you actually believed that God was with you? How would it change? If you actually, not like we all, if you're a Christian, you all theologically believe God's everywhere, Pastor Aaron. Theologically, he is everywhere. Omnipresent, Aaron. But in your heart though, do you actually live like he's with you in every situation? Like, listen, how how would it honestly change your outlook in the depression that you may struggle with? How does it change your outlook? Or what about the stressors of, of school and work with all the demanding projects, the frustrating boss you have? If you work for the church, don't say that, of course. Or the frustrating coworkers that you serve with every day. Like, how would it affect that if you were like, God's with me in this circumstance? Well, listen, how would it impact the anxieties you have about your future? Your future. How would it affect the worry you have on whether you'll have enough money in the future? Or how will it affect the fear you have about possibly being single the rest of your life? Or what about your kids? If they, will they grow up to be safe and loved and come to know Jesus one day? How would being mindful of God being with you affect every area of your life? So guys, here's kind of a one-liner I want, I want to give you. Guys, that God is actually both present and purposeful in every moment of every minute in your life. 
Just say that one more time. God is both present and purposeful in every moment of every minute in your life. When it feels out of control, when it feels painful, we can actually trust he's both present and purposeful in every moment, every minute of your life. Amen? This is what Joseph is holding on to. And that question is what's actually being presented to us in the life of Joseph. How does an outlook of this affect everything? And that's what we're going to see. In this chapter, we're going to see how this godly outlook resulted in good for others and glory to God. All because he lived in this reality. He knew that the keys were in his pocket. So he's not frantically searching around for something because he knows that God is with him and he's purposing every situation that he is in. And I hope that as we go through this, the same happens for your heart and your life as well. Now, guys, in this text, we're going to see God's presence impacts three areas of our life. We're going to see how it impacts our view of success, temptation, and suffering. That's, in fact, the three columns of what you see with Joseph this week, how God's presence impacts success, temptation, and suffering. So if you're taking notes, today's message is titled this, How God's Presence makes all the difference. Okay, let's start with the first one here. Let's unpack this. How does God's presence impact success? Let me just pause for a minute. When I'm in theological circles like ours and I say success, this is not a health and wealth and happiness sermon. I I don't mean that. By success, I'm meaning that God is taking your skills, your your opportunities, and he's purposing them. And, and you're getting better at those. You're succeeding. Doesn't mean you're going to buy a car one day or a house one day or have this extravagant life. But God is blessing what you're doing. That's what I mean. So how does God's presence, though, impact success? Let's look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar was an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. He's an Egyptian. And this man had actually brought Joseph from the Ishmaelites and had brought him down here to Egypt. Now, guys, this verse gets us caught up to where we have been in Joseph's story so far. Last week, it took a sidestep to talk about Judah and his life. And then through his line, a Messiah, Jesus, would come, the ultimate Messiah. And that's what we had been waiting for. So we took a sidestep. But if you remember, where are we in Joseph's story? Remember, he's a brother with 11 other brothers. His dad, Jacob, loves Joseph the most. He's the favorite son. He gets a coat of many colors and the brothers hate him. And so the brothers make up this plan. We're so tired of Joseph. He's got these visions from God. He's always bragging about how he's the favorite. I hate this dude. All the brothers make this plan. Let's throw him in a pit or let's kill him. And then Judah's like, wait, let's sell him and let's make a profit off our brother. So that's where we pick up is, well, who bought him? The Ishmaelites bought him. And then he gets in front of this horrible slave moment where people are just bidding for him. Potiphar is a captain of the guard. And so he's got a lot of money. And so he bids for Joseph. He buys Joseph he's in slavery, brings him to his house. But look at verse two, where it seems that God may not be most present. God is very much present. And church, I want you to pick up on that. Imagine Joseph for a moment. You're just betrayed by all your brothers. You hear them plotting your murder. And then by God's grace, one brother steps up and says, let's sell him instead. 
He's never, he thinks he's never going to see his family again. He's just completely discarded by his loved ones. If there's any moment for him or to you to think, God doesn't love me, he's not with me, I'm abandoned, it's in this moment. But what's verse two says? The Lord was with Joseph. Guys, listen, in your worst of your worst moments, the deepest, lowest of moments, the most angry, frustrated moments in your life, where no one gets you, you feel under, misunderstood in every sphere of your life, you're not abandoned, you're not alone, and God's gonna purpose that moment for you. There's a reason for it. That's what we see here. Verse two. So the Lord was indeed with Joseph. Now see how many times that phrase pops up as we read this. The Lord was with Joseph. And what happened? He became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him. That's number two. And that the Lord had caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. You see, again, the Lord's doing this. Verse four. So Joseph, he finds favor in his master's sight and attended him. And then his master makes him an overseer of his house and put him in charge of everything that he had. Very successful. Verse five, from the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Jacob's sake. Again, the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and the field. So he left all he had and Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything except just the food that he ate. So as we look at this concept of how does God's presence affect success, we've got, we've got three answers to that question. The first one is we see this, God motivates the hard work of success. God actually motivated Joseph to serve like this. Now guys, you have to remember this story. Joseph is a slave in this moment. He did not look in the newspaper. He did not look online, didn't get on LinkedIn and says, I would love to be a part of slavery right now. I would love to be bought into slavery and I would love to climb this slave corporate ladder. That's not his mindset. This is a terrible moment. If there's any moment for you to want to give up, quit, do nothing with your life, be resistant, this is the moment. He's sold against his will. He's forced against his will. This is awful. But what would have happened if Joseph just gives up here? What if he just throws in the towel and just sinks into depression? What if he chose not to care about his work because his work doesn't care about him? The mentality that many have in our culture today. The story would just end right here, right? And then if you know the story, then all of the Israelite people would have perished in the upcoming famine, including Judah, including Tamar, including the line of the coming Messiah. Joseph didn't give up, but what did he do? Joseph didn't give up, he pressed in. He knew that God was with him, he knew that God had him here in the worst of circumstances for a reason. He didn't understand that reason, but he knew that God was with him and can purpose any moment that we find ourselves in. He trusted that God had a purpose for this placement and he pressed into God's presence and he just got to work and he worked hard. But why? Joseph is motivated by the fact that God's actually the one working hard on his behalf. God's working hard to ensure that his will and his plan for Joseph is going to work out for his good and God's glory. And because God's working, Joseph is motivated by this. God is with me. God is with me. He's for me. This is purposeful. I hate this part of my life. 
It's not enjoyable. I shouldn't be here. I was betrayed. But God's going to work this out for good, so I'm going to work hard too. I'm motivated by God's work to work. Christian, that's how you and I should live. You can be in the worst of situations and worst of circumstances, but we can't throw in the towel because you know who allowed or arranged you to be there? God. Now I will say, just a sidestep moment, I will say the Bible also talks about this awful moment of slavery. And if you're able to have yourself be free, do it, the Bible is saying. The Bible's not condoning slavery, saying it's a good or right thing, because it's not a good or right thing. But we see that for whatever reason, God used the evil of slavery in Joseph's life to actually bring the good and salvation of the Israelite people. Even evil is on a leash in God's hands, making it work out for his good. Does that make sense? You guys follow me there? That's what we're seeing happening. So I don't want you to work hard when circumstances are good. You work hard because God worked hard on your behalf. And he has you in your place for a purpose. Amen? Does that make sense? Guys, he actually followed through on Colossians 3, 17, 23 through 24. Do you remember what that says? Let me share it. And whatever you do, God's word says, whether it's in word and deed, it says, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Everything. And guys, I just imagine Joseph's in charge of everything in the house. And I'm sure that the captain of the guard, he's got horses and cattle and animals. This is not a glorious job. Yes, he like rose to management and leadership, but he's like picking up animal feces and he's cleaning up the scraps from elaborate parties. He's cleaning whatever toilet and bathroom scene. This is not glamorous, but he did everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Verse 23, whatever you do, church, like Joseph, work heartily as for the Lord. Don't do it for men your boss, your coworker. Don't do it for a bigger paycheck, a higher promotion. Don't do it for those things. Serve hard because God worked hard on our behalf, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance of your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ through your work. Guys, in fact, he worked so hard that Potiphar saw that God was actually with Joseph. And as a result, what happens? Potiphar elevated Joseph to be in charge over everything in that house. <coughs> Sorry, give me one second. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, so church, God's presence should cause us to work hard knowing that our work glorifies God and benefits others. So what's our response to God motivating us in work? Guys, we should be honest at our jobs. We should be committed in our workplace we should be disciplined with our schedule and our timing of how we work hard. And then we should be the hardest workers at our companies, at our jobs, at our schools. We should be the hardest working. I don't mean burn yourself out and work 97,000 hours and be taken advantage of at work. I'm not saying that, but I am saying you should be the hardest worker. You should be known for integrity at your job, not because you love your company or your boss, and suffered and died. We are motivated then to serve this God and work hard unto him like he is the ultimate boss we're working for. Does that make sense? It's not about your actual job. It's not about the job description you were given from your employer. You've been given one by your king. Work hard. Work hard. Make sense? The answer number two. 
How does God's presence impact success? Here's what we got to learn. God causes success. That's the point here. God causes the success. Verse three, we see it very clearly. The Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Verse 5b, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and the field. Guys, in a congregation this size, although we're small, there's lots of us here. In a congregation like ours, there are tons of successful people in this room, academically, vocationally, financially, many of us in this room, you are successful. That's even maybe why you're in Boston. You can make it here. You're successful. But what comes along with that kind of success can often be a slow drift away from God. It's a long and slow drift from acknowledging that it was him that brought the success. Sometimes in our success, we forget that what we have Where we are, what we've done, God caused it. God blessed it. Because you have what you have because the Lord gave you the skills. He gave you that hard wiring. He gave that drive. He gave that strength. Does that make sense? If you're intellectual, yes, I acknowledge you've worked hard. You've studied. Who gave you that drive? Who wired you towards that knowledge? Does that make sense? There is someone behind all of that effort giving you the grace and strength and drive. Guys, if you're successful, he afforded you the finances and the opportunities and the open doors for education and a job. It's not that, again, you didn't work hard, but who gave you that drive, that endurance, that strength to get here? James 1.17 says it like this, every good gift and every perfect gift is from where? From above. Guys, we often talk about Maybe someone deconstructing from the faith, falling away from God when things get hard. But it's interesting, when you look at the Bible, people fall away from God when things get good. You seen that? We see that when success increases, a walk with God decreases, which shows that often our heart just wants to use them like a genie. God, I'll get close to you and I'll pray. God, please, please, I'll stay close to you because I want to be married. I want to have kids. God, please, I I got this test coming up. You know I got that test and I got to get good grades. So I got to go to church that Sunday. I got to go to community group. I got to rub the genie lamp, hoping he gets me a good grade. Whatever it is for us, guys, we're constantly doing that in our heart. But when we get to success, when we don't need God anymore because we've arrived at that goal we had in our heart, we begin to drift away. Guys, we see this with David in the Bible. We see this with Solomon. We see this with Saul. We see this with almost all the judges in the Old Testament and countless Others, we wander away from God more in the good times than we do in the bad times. Have you seen that in your life? Notice that when it's hard, we often are frustrated and we pray in that frustration. Yes, some of us may wander away, but it's often the good times. And that's what, in fact, Deuteronomy tells us. Deuteronomy Deuteronomy gives us a warning about wandering in good times. It says this, God says, when you have eaten and you're satisfied, be careful that you don't forget the Lord. When you have eaten and you're full and have built good houses and you live in them, when you herd, you have your flocks and you multiply silver and gold, it's multiplied in you. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he 
who gives you power to get wealth. Does that make sense? Guys, we've got to understand who causes success because success can be a bigger temptation than failure can. When you think about it, church, in your success, in your wealth, your intelligence, your status, your relationships, don't forget it wasn't you. It was the presence of the Lord that got you there. He caused it. Does that make sense? With Joseph and with you, it was the God who is with us that grants us success. So what's our response to that? What's our response? Guys, we should be the most humble and grateful people that this world has ever met. If you are the smartest person in the room in which you go in, you should be the humblest person in the room, knowing that yes, you've worked hard, but who motivated that? Who gave you the intellect? If we're walking around prideful and arrogant and boastful and always talking about us and what we know and what we've done, always talking over other people constantly because they need to know what we need to know, then what's, what's being proven is that you think that you should be worshiped. You, you think you should be followed. You, you should be admired. You should be listened to. And what we do is we begin to replace God on the throne of a heart with ourself. Does that make sense? Make sense? We've got to be careful here. God causes success. His presence in our life means that if you have any amount of success in your life, God has caused it. Answer number three, how do we know? Oh, sorry. Um, how does God's presence impact success? God purposes success. He purposes it. Verse three, verse three, his master saw that the Lord was with Joseph and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Guys, one of God's purposes for Joseph's success was what? Was so that Potiphar could experience God. Do you see that? His master saw that the Lord was with him. Guys, success for you is not an end in itself. Success is just the platform that God used to gain Potiphar's attention. Does that make sense? If you're good at something, it's not so that you could be admired. It's so that you could use the success to point people more to Jesus because you have more influence now. Does that make sense? Use your job as a platform to point to Christ. Any amount of success, use it. Talk about Christ. The point of it's not to glorify you, it's to glorify God. So Joseph was blessed to what? To be a blessing. He was blessed to be a blessing. In church, so are you. The clothes you have, the items you own, the money you've earned that God's given to you, all of that, your time, your talents, your treasures, all of that has been a blessing to you. Why? So that you can be a blessing to others. God blessed Joseph so that the whole household of the Egyptians would be blessed. God brought Joseph here so that they could know something about God. God brought him in the terrible place of slavery so that other people who were really in slavery to sin could be set free. Amen? That's what we're seeing here. Guys, we've, we've got to lift our head above the nine to five job, above the schoolwork for a second and say, why am I here? Why are these classmates in my classroom? Why do I have the professors? Why do I have the neighbors I do? Why am I in Boston? You're here to be a blessing because you've been blessed. Everything you own has been given from God. Are you being a blessing to bless others the way God has blessed you? Does it make sense, church? That's what he sees happen. God purposes success. It's not for a bigger paycheck, more status. It's so you can use that to bless others. That's the first thing we see. 
It's how God's presence impacts success. Number two, how does God's pack temptation? Temptation. Now listen, let's just be real. All of us in this room have different types of temptations, meaning that there is some external thing that happens in your mind and heart at times. Maybe it's a thought, maybe it's a lie. It's something that happens in your mind and heart that kind of just happens to you randomly or when you're tired or weary, and then you begin to go towards it that begins to possibly hurt you or hurt others. External things that happen, but also there are internal desires. There's leanings that you and I have. It could be a plethora of things which you'll go into. But as we look at temptation, temptation is seeking to lead us further from God that leads us closer to harm. And that's what we're seeing. How does God's presence, though, impact when temptation happens? So the first question we've got to ask is, how does temptation work? Like, how does it actually work? Let's look at verse six here. It says this. Now, Joseph was very much like me. He was handsome in form and appearance. Just kidding. Told Emily, I, no, just kidding. Just kidding. Joseph was not like me. He was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph. And she said, lie with me. And guys, very honestly, if, if you're looking at this text, that it literally means sex now. That's what's being said here. Sex now. Commanding him. But, verse 8, he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in the house than I am, nor has he kept anything back from me except you because you're his wife. How then can I do such great wickedness against him and sin against God? And she spoke to Joseph, though, day after day after day. But what did he do? He did not listen to her. He did not lie beside her or even spend time with her. So guys, how does temptation work? Alistair Begg, great pastor preacher, gives us these four things. How does it work? Temptation works in subtle ways. Do you see that in the text there? Subtle ways. After a time, his master's wife just cast her eyes on Joseph. It all started with just a, a, an extra long look, an extra long scroll on Instagram. It just happened in the search of Instagram where you start looking at people and what they wear and what they look like or how much they have. It starts with this subtle longing look. It may start with a small fear in your heart, looking at your bank account when your friend just bought a new house or a new car or they went on a trip and you're like, I, I want to do that too. And fear begins to hit because you're like, I don't know if I have enough money for that. You begin to panic and you begin to store up money in your heart. You don't give or care or love with it. It all starts subtle. She's, you're just casting your eyes somewhere for a moment. It starts subtly in your heart. And then number two, it strikes. Strikes. It says in verse seven, she cast her eyes on Joseph and she said, here's a strike, lie with me. Guys, that's what temptation will do. You may be at home in the middle of the night. You may be with your coworkers. And then there's an inappropriate joke that's shared. You may be at the bar with your friends and you know you shouldn't drink one more, but everyone else is. You're with your boyfriend or girlfriend. You're in your apartment. It's later than you want. Things are getting turned up a little bit. You're interested in each other and, and you take that step. It just strikes. It just strikes. That's how it works. It happens in all of us. But then it sometimes goes further. It's sustained, sustained. Here's what it says in verse 10. She spoke to Joseph day after day. She kept going at it. And that's how temptation works. I'm not just blaming this woman. It happens in men as well. 
Over and over, day after day, the temptation is sustained. It's going after us. Guys, one of my friends, Pastor Stephen uh, from Forest Hills, gave this analogy. If you guys watch any of the Jurassic Park movies, even Shelby, I think you're here. I saw, yeah. All the Jurassic Park movies, there's always some fence and all the characters are like, they'll never get through. And then the dinosaur is constantly chipping at the weakest part of the fence over and over and over again. And surprisingly, they get through. Don't have dinosaurs. Don't breed them. But six movies later, we're still doing it, whatever. But what's happening, we're seeing, is that the dinosaurs are finding some weak place in the fence and chips away at it. Guys, all of us have some weak spot that the enemy is using to chip away at us, to bring harm and hurt and cause us to go away from God. Temptation is sustained, finding weaknesses and punching at it over and over and over again. By the way, this is why you can't live in isolation. This is why you need community group. You need DNA group. You need someone to know you deeply and know the Bible richly to share and invest in you. This is why you church need to do that with someone else. The weak points are not somewhere you need to hide away from. You need other people to help you make it stronger. Amen, does that make sense? Sustained. Last thing is strategic, strategic. In verse 11, it says, but one day after all these days she's tried, but one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the other men were in the house, strategic, she caught him by the garment saying, lie with me or sex now. Guys, temptation is strategic. No one else was in the house and then temptation strikes. That's the same thing that happens in you and me. Temptation finds you when you're tired, when you're weary, when you're angry, when you're discouraged. Does it not? It finds you there. We've already talked about how it finds us in success, but it also finds us in failure and discouragement. And that's what happens right here. It's strategic moment. So that's how temptation works. It's subtle, strikes, sustained, strategic, But then how do we fight temptation? How does God's presence actually help us to fight temptation? And here's another little acronym for you. It's ANTHEM. There's one pastor that came up with this acronym. I want to share it with you today. I think it's really helpful to help you fight temptation. And you're going to see this in the text. The first thing is A, avoid. That's a great strategy is just run away. It's a great strategy. We're going to see this twice in this text here. It says that he would not listen to her. He did not lie beside her. And he didn't even go to be with her. Now, guys, I'm not saying that this woman herself is some evil person and stay away from women because they're seductress. We got to make sure we we push back and we're not saying that women are like this or we're not saying that men are like this. We're saying that this is how temptation works. We've got to be careful. But what Joseph does, he's not rude to her. He's not disrespectful. He's saying he's not listening to what temptation's offering. He avoids it. He doesn't go and just lay down next to her in the apartment on the couch saying, oh, this is just fine. They're not sleeping in the same bed for a little while and just kind of hanging out watching a movie. He's not, le- he's not letting temptation creep in. He's not lying beside her and he doesn't spend all this prolonged time with her in the house where something could grow in his heart or her heart. So he avoids. Number two, he says, no, I love this. Just no. Guys, we learned this that you have to say no to temptation within the first second it comes into your mind or it's already gonna have a grip and grasp on you. Within the first second, you are tempted to lie, to lust, to do some sort of sin, to drink another one, whatever the case may be, you've got one second. That thought comes in and you analyze it and you choose. In that moment, you've gotta have a gut reaction to say no. And that's what he does. She says in verse seven, what? Lie with me. The next verse says, but he refused. It's immediate. Guys, I tell my kids this often. 
guys, I, I love you children. Listen, you've got to obey right away, all the way, or you'll fall away and end up getting hurt. I tell my kids that all the time. They're like, dad, are you Dr. Seuss? I'm like, yeah, I wrote all of them because they all rhyme. But honestly, the same thing exists here, guys. We've got to fight back right away, all the way, or you're going to fall away. It's cheesy and stupid, but you and I do it every day. We don't acknowledge or follow this simple rule because it's hard when temptation does this next one. It, it lies to us. That's the T. We've got to turn away from the lies. That's why it's so tricky. Verse 10, it says this, and she spoke to Joseph day after day and he would not what? Listen to her, listen to her. It's not just her words, but it what it could offer him. This man has no connection anymore, right? Family, gone. Love, gone. In slavery, he's not like hanging out with his buddies after work one day. He just goes to his cell. Like this is awful for him. There's no love. There's no connection. There's no intimacy. So what's he probably longing for? Those things. What does sex on the surface have to offer? Those things. But he turns away from the lie thinking, I can't find my connection here. I can't find my intimacy here. I can't find my pleasure in this woman. It would be wicked against Potiphar. It would be wicked against God. I I can't do it. I've got to resist the lie that sexual pleasure is what I most need right now. And guys, we've got to hang on to that in temptation. We can't think that that drink will just finally make the pain and the stress go away. If I can just numb myself out and just calm down for a minute, then I will be better. The numbing wears off what's still there, the stress. You don't ultimately need another drink. You don't ultimately need a sexual experience. You don't ultimately need more money. You ultimately need to live in the reality that God is with you, for you, has purposed where you are, and will work it out for you good. That's what you need to live and drink deeply in that. You've got to turn away from the lies of what temptation offers. The H, you've got to hold on to truth. Hold on to truth. And I love how he does this in verse nine. She's giving the offering every day to him. He's probably considering in some capacity what she's offering every day. Remember his circumstance, he's in a terrible place. And he says, well, how then could I do this great wickedness? He, he calls it what it is. He He says, this is the truth. This would be wicked against God, but it would be great sin. Sorry, wickedness against Potiphar, but great sin against God. He holds on to truth. This is wrong for this husband and the wife. This is wrong against God. He holds on to truth. In church, that's what we've got to do. Turn from lies, but then turn to truth about what really is right and satisfying for us, pleasurable for God, good for human flourishing. Number five, we've got to enjoy Christ more than what temptation offers. We come back to these verses often in Psalm 16, verse four and 11, but let me read them to you again. It says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. It doesn't mean that he's trying to worship some other God with a name, but the God of sex, the God of intimacy, the God of pleasure, these lower false gods. And so in his heart, I'm wondering if he's storing that up, you know what I'm saying? Like he's like, okay, there's going to be more sorrow then relief, if I do this, I'm not going to run after the God of sex. And so I wonder if he stores verse 11 somehow in his mind, even before it's written, I wonder if this truth is in his heart through God. It says, you make known to me the path of life, God. It's in your presence, not in sex, is there fullness of joy. It's at your right hand, God, our pleasures forevermore and not with this woman. As he enjoys Christ more. And so he can turn away from what's lesser because he knows he has something more. Let me illustrate this for a second. I am a sucker for free bread at a restaurant. 
I will ruin the snot out of my meal for some chips, for some bread. Uh, recently, Emily and I went to a stockyard restaurant that's here in Brighton. We love a good steak. A vegans, just be gracious to me. You know, uh, a vegetarian, just be gracious as I share the story. But just yeah, I, I love some good steak. I love a good, like, giant, uh, whether it's a tomahawk or a filet, or a ribeye, whatever it is, I just, I'm going to eat it. We get there, but I'm like hungry because I'm like, I'm not going to eat all day because I'm just going to crush it at night. So I don't eat lunch. And I get there and they put this great bread basket in front of me. And I'm like elbowing my wife out the way. I'm kicking my kids out the booth. I'm like, give me this. I'm not really doing that. I'm like, give me this bread. And I eat it all and I fill myself up. And the steak comes. I'm like, I don't got any room for this. I have no room for this steak. And in my moment, I'm like, man, I'm missing out on what's greater because I ate what's lesser. And guys, that's what temptation is. Snack on this thing that's not fulfilling, that's just gonna fill you up for a little bit so you miss out on the main course. And temptation is recognizing that delayed gratification is the best way to be satisfied. I'm gonna delay, I'm not gonna obey this temptation. I'm going for the source, going for Christ. Does that make sense? Enjoy Christ more. Don't settle for the bread, although the bread's real good. Some of these restaurants are good. Don't settle for less. The last thing, what do we do? We just got to move. I love this. Just move, just leave, just flee, just run. Go somewhere else when temptation hits you. Call somebody, text somebody, go on a walk, get out the bar, whatever it is. And that's what we see happen. Again, verse 11. But one day when he went into the house to do work, none of the men were in the house. They were out. So she catches him by the garment saying, lie with me. But what the man does is crazy. He left his garment in her hand, so this dude is naked, and he fled out the house. Listen, I don't care if you leaving a situation is going to embarrass you. The bro's naked, running out the house. That's going to be an embarrassing story. People are going to laugh at him. I don't care. He's trying to honor God, honor this woman, in fact, honor her husband. And so he just flees. He just leaves. Fleeing is a great strategy. It works. It's a strategy to fight temptation. Just like get out of there. You don't have to have another drink. You don't have to scroll on your phone. You don't have to get on dating apps. If it's unhealthy for you, you, you can just flee. In fact, 1 Timothy 6 says that. But as for you, O man of God, or in our case, the people of God, flee these things. Just run. But we're not just fleeing from, we're fleeing to somewhere. What are we doing? We're fleeing to, it says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, Fight the good fight of faith. Guys, we know from John Owen that you must be killing sin or what? Sin will be killing you. We, we are not friends with sin. We're not friends with temptation. It is a battle. It's a war you've got to fight. And your best strategy is sometimes just to leave, just to remove yourself from a situation that's gonna lead to your hurt, harm, and maybe somebody else. So that's anthem. Avoid, say no, turn away, hold the truth, enjoy Christ, and move. Then lastly, lastly, number three, how does God's presence impact suffering? How does it impact suffering? Verse six, back to the story, verse 16, excuse me. Then she laid up his garment by her side until her master, or excuse me, until his master, her husband came home. And she told him the same story that she had just given to the other servants in the house a few verses ago, saying, this Hebrew servant of yours, whom you have brought among us, came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and he fled out of the house. 
As soon as his master heard the words of his wife that spoken to him, his anger was kindled. He believes the story she tells. And Joseph's master with anger takes him and puts him in prison. Man, things are just getting worse. Guys, do you ever feel like obeying God is just sometimes harder and worse for you? You feel like, God, I'm trying to stay sexually pure, trying to walk with you, but you don't care. You're not providing me a spouse. I'm praying to you. I'm serving the church. You could care less about me, God. I'm doing all this stuff for you, God. Why are you not for me? Why are you not good? Why don't you care about me? I'm trying to do everything else. These people get all those stuff and they're living ungodly lives. What about me? Have you ever felt that? Or is it just me? Did I just like unload something, right? All of us have felt some capacity. That's, what's, that's what could happen in him. He did something honoring and things got worse for him. His suffering has just increased. He got out of the pit. His brothers threw him and st- stuff started getting pretty good. And then he honors God and he's thrown in prison. As we'll find out, he's gonna be in prison for a good many number of years. He is suffering. But what does we see in verse 21 that we've seen in each paragraph of this chapter? Verse 21, but the Lord again was with Joseph. It's his presence that matters. And God showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the innkeeper of the prison. Can I just pause for a moment? Some of us, we measure God's love if he gets you out of the circumstance that's terrible, then he loves you. Do you see the difference here? God allowed him to be in the circumstance and says, I love you. Do you, do you see? God may have you in an awful situation or circumstance that's heartbreaking. And that is also in that God may be doing something so that you would know his love better. Does that make sense? Guys, we can't measure God's love based on your circumstances. You've got to measure God's love based on the cross. The cross proved God's love, not your circumstance. Because you don't know what your circumstances are and what's actually happening in there. You can't determine if God loves you if you have a good life. It's the fact that God died so that you would have the eternal life in heaven. Amen? This is what we see here. So the Lord was with Joseph. He showed him steadfast love. He gave him favor in the sight of the innkeeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph, then he's elevating, here we go put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he who was the one who did it. The innkeeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Why? Because the Lord was with Joseph again. And whatever Joseph did, the Lord made it succeed. So two answers to the question, how does God's presence impact suffering? The first one here, God's presence in suffering will bring a deeper growth. It will bring a deeper growth a growth in God's comfort and in your character. The growth in your comfort, guys, listen, I, just, I don't know another way to say this. It's not real theological. It's not real deep. There's just some parts of Jesus that you can only know better through pain and suffering. There's just a deeper, richer relationship with Christ when you go through the worst things in life. If you look at the story of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, which we won't go into now, but they see a different side of Jesus where we see Jesus weep and mourn and hurt in the pain. Jesus invites Mary and Martha into this to comfort them and love them. And then he shows them something about himself. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Even though he dies, he will live again. And we know that that's not just pointing to live again on earth, but he'll live again in eternity. Mary and Martha see something about Jesus that they never would have seen unless they went through pain. So God's presence in suffering means that he's going to bring a deeper growth in God's comfort 
for you is comfort for you. We also see that it's going to bring a deeper growth in your character, in your character, who you are. Jordan, this is a shout out to you. You love this quote. Several pastors have used this. I think it became most popular. Charles Spurgeon once said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Think about that, just that imagery for a moment. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock. The wave that's bringing the hurt, the pain, shamming, shamming, that's not even a word, shoving you against the rock over and over again. That wave, I've learned to kiss the wave. Why? Because in dark and difficult trials, we often long to be delivered from the pain. But Spurgeon's words and his experience shows that God wants to deliver us to himself in that pain. Guys, what if God intends to work through our suffering rather than take it away? Our prayers are often filled with God, remove this. Rather than God, would you do whatever this trial is meant for to remove whatever in my heart that shouldn't be there? God, rather than delivering me from this suffering, would you deliver me closer to you in whatever purpose you have? Does that make sense? I love that quote. God in his grace always designs and uses our trials for good. In the midst of the stormy waves of trial, embrace the God who what? Walks on water. His presence is there in the midst of the storm. James says it like this in James 1. He says, count it all joys, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you guys, you know that the testing of your faith, it's going to produce steadfastness. Steadfastness, when it's had the full effect, and you'll be made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect doesn't mean moral. It means complete. That God's purpose in that trial created a deeper character in you that made you more like God and accomplished what he had for you. So God's presence in suffering will bring you deeper growth, but listen to what it'll also do. God's presence in suffering will bring a wider reach. Deeper growth, but a wider reach, meaning a ministry or a care for others. Guys, sometimes, sometimes your pain enables you to minister to the pain of others. Paul once said in the scriptures, because I was afflicted, he says, I am able to comfort others with the comfort that I gained from Christ when I was suffering. Because you went through that breakup, that setback, that hurt, that death, you can say to someone, hey, I've I've, I've been there. I've tasted and seen Jesus in that wilderness. I've been in that valley and I've found him to be there with still water and he loved me there. And I can comfort you in that place. You're not alone. Guys, sometimes what you're going through is gonna make no sense in the moment like Joseph and you just have to trust. Joseph's life shows us that God's not gonna waste one moment, one event in God's plans God was so much with Joseph in the pit and in the prison. And when he gets to the palace, God's with him every step of the way. And even so much more, church, please listen. If you zoned out, which none of you have, this is the moment to pick back in. You guys are doing great, by the way. Listen, the pit and the prison were the means for God to bring Joseph to the palace. The suffering was a design to bring salvation to the people of Israel, to bless them, to care for them. 
Joseph's life goes to show us that the path of God's salvation to the world involves suffering and involves hurt. God didn't save the nation of Israel from this upcoming famine despite Joseph's suffering, but because it and through it. In other words, the way people will hear about Jesus's wounds will often be through what? Through your wounds, through your pain, through your hurt. That's when God's testimony is strongest. Guys, Jesus saved us, not despite his wounds, but through his wounds. And so that's how God uses us in blessing and salvation of others. It's gonna be the same way. It's gonna be through your wounds, talking about Christ's wounds. Your pain and suffering has a purpose. It has meaning and value in God's hand. It's all on God's leash, using it for your good and his glory. So church, let me close with the same question that we started with. How would your outlook on life change if you actually believed that God God was both present and purposeful in every minute of every moment in your life? How would your attitude change what is currently taking place in your life? How would it affect that? Or maybe how would that affect how you view what's happened in your past? That God was with you there and, and purposed what happened and can use it. Guys, are you able to even rejoice in the broken places in your life, knowing that they have purpose in God's hand? For you to know him better, for you to grow in his love and comfort, and for you to better minister to others? Are you able to somehow begin to rejoice, not in the evil that happened, but in the good that God can turn it into? In other words, can you kiss the wounds which have made you weep, knowing that they were allowed from the Savior who died for you, who now sits on the throne and promises to work that same wound out for your good and his glory? Guys, it's through the wounds of Joseph that that we see the wounds of Christ. Joseph is just pointing us to Jesus here. Jesus is the better Joseph. He's the better Joseph. Jesus successfully lived a perfect life without sin. Successfully lived without sin, accomplishing all of the law so that we could have God's righteousness. We see Joseph successful, but it really points to Jesus being successful. Guys, Jesus avoided the allure of temptation to Satan, not just this woman in the house, but to Satan himself. Over 40 days in the course of his life, he avoided the allure of temptation. And last, Jesus is the better Joseph because he suffered the cross in your place so that we could have the hope and healing through his suffering. Church, we see that Jesus is the better Joseph so that you could what? You could experience the presence of God in your life and live in the impact of its reality. So church, again, how will the presence of God in your life impact your life this week? How will it change how you view your current circumstances? Knowing that God is in it and has purposed it for your good and his glory. Let's pray together.